The Water Values Podcast, Session 69. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. Today we've got a great guest speaking on an important topic, uh, but before I introduce him, a few quick items. First, if you haven't done so, don't forget to take the Water Values Listener Survey. I've mentioned this on uh, multiple previous episodes, but it really does uh, help me come up with the topics you want to hear. Um, also, please don't forget to rate and equally as important, review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory on which you listen. That'll really help get the word out about the podcast. And while you're at it, please subscribe to the podcast so you get the automatic downloads. So thanks so much for all that. Uh, Drew Bender of VS Engineering joins us today. Drew is, as you might expect, an engineer uh, who's been involved with green infrastructure projects for going on 20 years now. He's got a wealth of knowledge and history working on green infrastructure projects, and it will give us his thoughts on green infrastructure and really delve down into one specific form of green infrastructure, specifically uh, constructed wetlands. Well, how do I know Drew is good on this subject? Well, a little more than 10 years ago, I was working on a project involving a new sewer utility. Um, it, was, it was for a a uh, group of lakefront homes uh, who all had septic systems that were failing, and they were very worried about the water quality in the lake from the, uh, as a result of the failed septics. And so we're, they were going to establish a new sewer utility and use a constructed wetland system for the treatment of the waste. During the process of establishing the sewer utility before the, the utility commission, we went in and uh, presented this idea of a constructed wetlands uh, some parties were concerned about the appropriateness for using a constructed wetland system for for the treatment of the waste. At one of our meetings, we brought Drew in and had him speak uh, to the other side and explain what exactly a constructed wetland system was, how it worked, and all the the ins and outs of it. He was able to answer every one of their questions, and from that point on, you know, we got a settlement. We moved forward with the uh, with with the proceeding, got the approvals, and the system's been up and running now. And as I understand it, it has been working absolutely flawlessly. So I know Drew knows his stuff, and so I'm sure you will really enjoy listening to Drew talk about green infrastructure issues today. So with that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Drew, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time. Uh, to start off, Drew, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Absolutely. Dave, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, my background. So I grew up always interested in being an engineer, in particular an aerospace engineer. I was hoping to go into the Navy and fly planes off carriers. My eyesight did me completely in on that. <laughs> so I turned and looked uh, more towards civil engineering. Um, kind of the roads and bridges aspect of it. Um, as I was growing up uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, I spent my time in high school there, and I ran into a professor and actually the head of the civil department at the University of Kentucky. His name was Dr. Vinch Drinovich. And Dr. D, as everybody called him, was uh, influential to me in moving towards the civil engineering department. He then moved to Purdue 
and I had already been looking at Purdue University, and with him moving there, he kind of prompted and encouraged me to take a look at uh, Purdue's program. I got there, was very interested in civil, especially in the urban water, urban hydrology, the wastewater aspects, and stormwater in particular were the areas that I focused on. Got it. And where is that, uh, where is that interest in, in you know, water and water engineering kind of led you? Well, I'll tell you, um, I was headed down a road of being probably a classic municipal engineer dealing with maybe a wastewater treatment plant or stormwater, um, CSO, all of those good background for what I'm doing now. But there just happened to be one class that I took from a guest lecturer who came in for one day. His name was Jim New. And Jim was a um, scientist at the Department of Natural Resources and for 27 years and then jumped out to start his own company focused on the use of green infrastructure, wetlands, kind of mimicking some of the things that were going on in the natural world that he saw to treat stormwater and wastewater. And I tell you, I was hooked. As soon as I took that class, I came out of that hour-long lecture, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. I got hooked up with him, thankfully, immediately out of college, got an interview, accepted a job there, and uh, spent uh, the next 17 years working uh, under Jim and other folks there at JF New to, to really learn and, and grow the craft. Sure. And where are you now? So currently I have uh, at a company called VS Engineering, and I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana, and working on uh, a wide variety of projects, back to kind of my civil engineering roots, but still with a major focus on water. Uh, it seems that no matter what project you're doing, whether it's a roadway or a bridgeway, uh, everything comes back to water in some form or fashion that you've got to deal with. And in particular, nowadays with the way the rules and regulations are, treatment of that water and looking at the pollutant loads and the flood loads becomes a huge issue. Sure. And I assume, have you brought with you kind of that, uh, that expertise or experience in green infrastructure that you, that you cultivated at JF New? Absolutely. And uh, it's one of the elements that we're working on. Okay, and so could you tell us like, kind of some of the the projects that you've worked on that involve green infrastructure? What because a lot of people talk about green infrastructure, I don't, I'm not sure that everyone understands what exactly green infrastructure is. Sure, and it's taken on such a huge scope in terms of the name, uh, but at its essence, you know, it's taking a look at how do you deal with water in kind of a I don't know, let's call it a non-conventional way, but so maybe we should step back. Originally, uh, there was no control of our water and stormwater as it ran off our sites. And really, without getting into too much of a history, we just tried to send water off our sites and prevent flooding as best we could. And anytime we developed something, the idea was to make sure it didn't flood and cause problems in what we were developing. So. We have for a while now realized that just sending everything downstream as fast as we can is not helpful. And so there has been in place control of that water. It's only, though, been in the relatively recent past where we've looked at the pollutant load that's in that water and really focused on how do we control that. And so starting in the 90s with MS4, um, they really looked at, from an EPA standpoint, how do we control the water and look at some of the aspects within the water on the pollutant loads. So 
that covers everything, whether it's coming off a road or coming off a building site. How do we control that pollutant load? And when I got involved way back in the mid-'90s, uh, when I came out of school, there weren't too many green infrastructure projects being put in place. But the very first one I worked on was some stormwater coming off a road in South Bend, Indiana. And they looked at, okay, what is in this water and how is it impacting a stream that contained a trout, the Indiana brown trout. And so as you looked at that, it became a site-specific need to put in a different practice. It wasn't enough just to control the flow of water. We had to look at control of the pollutants. Green infrastructure kind of refers to using something to control the pollutant load and reduce the pollutant load before it leaves the site or before it gets into a natural waterway, and in particular using something that mimics something in the natural system, in the natural environment. So filtration, using plants, using infiltration to try to get the water back into the ground. There's a huge variety of options. Sure. And so how, how are cities going about implementing these green infrastructure options? Uh, you, you mentioned uh, a road project in South Bend uh, concerning runoff into a, a trout stream. You know, what are some of the other examples of where cities have used green infrastructure? If you look at any water that's coming off a site, um, there's a couple ways you can deal with it. And one is by containing the water and using some kind of filtration to remove the pollutants, remove the sediments within that water as it moves through. In particular, of course, we're talking mostly about stormwater here. Um, the different types, any kind of plant material where you're doing through a swale, where maybe you have some tall grasses, maybe you have a wetland system, maybe you have the ability to use a layer of gravel to filter that water as it moves through. Things called bioswales, where you actually can treat the water as it moves through, but also allow water to infiltrate naturally into the ground. The longer you can slow that water down, A, you get a greater reduction in any pollutant load, but B, you can also recharge the groundwater there and prevent shocks, flooding, erosion control, or erosion issues downstream where you really can control that. It, you see, if you go back and look at wetlands in the natural sense and what they've provided overall from a benefit standpoint for any of these green infrastructures where you're trying to mimic, you're really looking at things like erosion control, flood control, pollutant control that they have always provided in the natural environment. And we're looking at, cities are looking at using some of those techniques interspersed into even in urban downtown areas to control some of the runoff uh, and pollutant loads in the water. Sure. And so, so when cities are looking at these projects, you know, you, you hear a lot about, hey, we want to have everything be green infrastructure. I mean, is that the way we're going, that everything in, you know, all the infrastructure projects are always going to have uh, a component of the of the green infrastructure in them, or you know, what is your thought on on where we're heading along those lines? So, we should explain a little bit that when you're looking at stormwater, everyone agrees that we need to do something to improve the quality of the stormwater before it just goes downstream. There's a responsibility that, for the most part, everyone has embraced that 
we need to take care of the water and the pollutant loads on our site and not just pass it on downstream. And so there's a general acceptance that these practices, green and otherwise, are needed to improve the water. The challenge with any kind of stormwater system is just how do you actually monitor and measure that? Stormwater is a huge variable on a site from a very light rain to a heavy rain to a sustained rain and a very short burst. You can have huge volumes that come through. You can have long uh, expanses of rain where maybe it's a steady rain, but the overall volume becomes a tremendous load on a site. All of those variables contribute to a, a very difficult time in actually measuring what the pollutant load is and or measuring whether your treatment system that you're putting in place to capture and treat that stormwater is actually effective at the levels that you want it to be effective. All this being leading up to most cities and communities have embraced what you would call a prescriptive approach to it, where they have said, okay, we understand that everyone's going to try and remove pollutant loads if you use these types of techniques that we have identified whether it's a rain garden or a bioswale or a wetland, if you put these in, then we will all agree that you have treated the level, the water to the level that you need. So it's almost a menu option. We've given people the formula and said basically pick two of these. Um, they work better in series, and so if you can put one following another, you have a the ability to really provide a tremendous value of reducing the pollutant load in water. In doing so, we've kind of taken out the thinking behind it. We've said, hey, here's two. You pick uh, the different types you want and uh, put them on your site, and we'll all agree that they're good. We've kind of taken out the question, there are some sites where maybe you don't need anything on them. Um, and so now we're mandating the use which in general is probably a good thing, but oftentimes can be applied in a place where maybe there isn't any runoff that's polluted, maybe it's a very small amount, maybe our site doesn't need uh, two different ones, um, and yet some of the rules and regulations as they've been being put in place now are mandating the use, which overall is a good thing, but maybe on an individual site has taken out some of the thinking behind what we need to be doing as designers. And what's the result of that? What what kind of problems does that cause? Well, so one of the main questions I get asked whenever we're doing green infrastructure on a site is, oh, well, what you know, what kind of maintenance is this? Is it going to be a hassle, or can you put in something that doesn't require maintenance? Well, recall, the whole purpose of this is to remove some of the pollutants and pollutant load in the stormwater. So if we're not passing it downstream to the next community down, then anything we do and put in place to capture it on site is going to require maintenance. You know, whether it's floatables from trash that could just get into the system and collect, whether it's sediment and runoff from dirt and grit and grime that collects and, and uh, has to be removed and pulled out of our systems, whether it's a system of infiltration that gets clogged because it has so much silt and sand coming in uh, that it covers up the different practices that we're putting in place. All of those require maintenance. So anytime you put a system like this in, it does require upkeep, and there are costs associated with that. 
If you're in a city that requires monitoring and maintenance, some cities require annual reports. So there's going to have to be some paperwork, which everyone loves, that's done. <laughs> there's some red tape along with these. Uh, but all of these practices, when you're going in in a mandated system, require additional maintenance and work on the backside. It may be that we don't need to do those on every single site. So there's kind of a built-in cost. Obviously, there's a cost of infrastructure to put these in, but there's also a cost of maintenance long-term on these. Sure. And what about what about very small parcels? Because once you get into very densely urbanized areas and say you have a teardown, uh, you know, you presumably the new structure that is built there is going to be subject to these, you know, rules and regulations you've, you've mentioned. I assume you're talking about ordinances, you know, development standards and things like that, that, that cities have used their zoning power uh, to, to uh, enforce. Now, are there, are there issues on these smaller, you know, very densely urbanized parcels? Well, you can imagine, especially on a small parcel, um, every square footage matters. And so if you are looking at uh, a development of a small area or a teardown and a retrofit in, inside a, a small urbanized space, maybe there's not a whole lot of runoff to begin with, and certainly there's probably not a whole lot of pollution. Um, I should note, uh, just as a side note, that I, in general what we're talking about is post-construction control of stormwater. So during the construction process is a whole different ballgame. Um, and stormwater is mandated to be uh, ensuring that there's no erosion and runoff and, and pollution that escapes during the construction process. But post-construction, after everything's built and in place, uh, that's really what we're talking about here. And on a small site like this, you may have almost minimal impact to the surrounding, such that taking up a large chunk of your small area really becomes impractical. And so there are a number of techniques that are subsurface, but as you can imagine, subsurface equals dollars and becomes highly expensive. So it can be that the use of some of these green infrastructure practices in a very strict and rigid manner of you must do this can almost um, slow down and stop the economic development of areas because of the cost associated with them for very little benefit. Sure. And and if I can pivot now and, and ask you, 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 earlier you mentioned plants and using kind of, I think in the context, uh, plants were uh, intended to be used as filtration. So that, that in my mind, raises uh, constructed wetlands. And so could you talk a little about, about how, you know, what a constructed wetland is and kind of how, you know, from a pretty high level, how it functions? Sure. I, I mentioned earlier just kind of natural wetlands and those benefits that they provide. A constructed wetland is designed to mimic those benefits um, to a site. And so you have water, you have plants, you have some type of media, whether it's dirt or sand or gravel, that's kind of making up the constructed wetland itself. So anytime water moves through, something that, that is a media with plants, all the roots associated with them. What that allows you to do, first off, is filter any of the uh, floating items, any of the sediment, the particles in general that are moving through stormwater. 
The good news with that right off the bat is the majority of pollutants in stormwater are associated with the sediment flow and the particles that are in the stormwater. And so even some of your chemicals and your metals, your oils and greases, usually are trapped in some form or adhered to in some form the particles. So just by providing a filtering action as water moves through, you can remove a tremendous amount of your pollutant loads within stormwater. Uh, in addition, along all of those different surface areas, and you can imagine when you look at a wetland, and next time you drive by and it's filled with plants, and you look at all the different surface areas that are within there along the media in it, along the plant material, along the roots, all of those areas contain bacteria. And it's good bacteria, but all of that bacteria within there feeds off of the pollutant load that's coming through there. And so you can reduce and trap some of your nutrients, such as nitrogens, you can reduce your phosphorus load in there. All of the different pollutants that we're concerned with as it gets into our downstream water bodies, wetlands do a great job of holding and removing. Sure. And so where are you seeing these these constructed wetlands being implemented? I mean, I, I can they be used anywhere? I mean, specifically, I'm kind of thinking right now of, of areas that may not get a lot of, of rain, um, so wh where are you seeing them implemented? So you can imagine wetlands in general uh, work the best during summer months. Um, now, when you're designing them in an area that has both summer and frigid cold temperatures, you have to design it based on the limiting factor, which is the, the removal during the winter time. But they have great application and, and probably the best results you're going to get in areas with high summer use. So if you were looking at stormwater uh, in an area or, in particular, let's look at wastewater because that's another aspect that we haven't yet talked about. Uh, but you can use constructed wetlands as um, treatment for actual wastewater. I'm sure some of your listeners here are familiar with septic systems. Uh, houses that are off of sanitary systems that have their own treatment, a septic tank, and then they go into the ground. In those situations, wetlands are perfect use. After it goes through your septic tank where you're collecting some of your large solids, it then moves into a wetland where it flows through a media and the roots of the wetland plants, removes and reduces that pollutant load that's in there down to a level that is 90% uh, reduced in the level of, of pollutants entering it. And so, therefore, when it goes into the ground, you have a much better entry into the ground, you have a much reduced pollutant load, and it really provides a huge benefit locally to the environment using them in that situation. So if you extrapolate that to where can we use these for different sanitary systems, and mentioning in the summer, for instance, camps, parks, resorts, those types of areas are perfect applications for constructed wetlands. The other thing is with wetlands is the actual energy use is so low. There's no mechanical parts. There may be a pump, depending on if you need to move the water from a lower place to a higher place to flow through the wetland. But it's a very passive treatment system. So instead of pumps and blowers and moving parts that you would normally associate with it, mechanical treatment system, 
a wetland is a very passive. It takes two to seven days typically to flow through a wetland cell. And so during that time period there, passive flow is when your removal is taking place. It does require space, which is the flip side of that. And so you need to be looking at these in areas where you have land and land is available to use um, and is not an expense limiting factor. Sure. And are, are there limits in terms of the size? Uh, you know, you, you got to have, you know, so much flow coming in or you can't have more than a certain amount of flow coming in. What are, what are kind of the, the limits on, on the size of the wetlands? So it's all about hydraulic retention time and meaning how long is the water staying within the wetland? If there's too much water moving through, then you have to develop additional wetlands and, and continue to make them into uh, cells that are larger and larger. At some point, uh, they become too large and the flow isn't uniform through the system. So if you can imagine um, a rectangle and the water comes in at one, the shorter side of the rectangle and is horizontally spread out and then it moves down the longer length of the rectangle and is collected at the other end. That whole length and time you're moving down is when your treatment is occurring. At some point, if it gets too wide across, then as the flow moves through, it'll start to become channelized. And as it becomes channelized through the middle, then it will flow through at a faster rate through a smaller cross-section. The faster it goes, the lower your retention time is in there, and the lower your results are. So there's a diminishing rate of return in terms of how big the cells are. Now, what you can do is break it up into multiple cells, such that you have multiple smaller cells, and you can maintain that flow through the way you need it to. The issue then just becomes the total amount of space you're taking, and at some point you're uh, you reach a cost curve point where it's probably better to put in a mechanical system that has a smaller footprint, even with a higher cost, so you don't use up so much of the land. On the flip side, and I think you brought it up, was, you know, can you have a situation where there's not enough water? Certainly, uh, especially during the very early stages of getting these established because they're plants. Um, and so you do have to have plant material, you have to put it in place, have it grow and establish itself. If you're just in a complete area where you're getting no water, then the plants themselves are not going to survive. You do tailor the plant material to the environment that you're in. So for instance, we use a completely different suite of plants in Florida as opposed to Colorado, as opposed to California. If you're working in the high desert uh, areas, then as long as you have the flow of water, then you can maintain the system um, and maintain the plant health. But you're using plants that are native to that area so that they thrive and grow. Got it. Are, the, are there any kind of uh, side benefits to these, to these wetlands in terms of, say, like, you know, habitat for uh, animals and birds and things like that? Or? Absolutely. There's a tremendous benefit to these from a habitat standpoint. They are wetlands. Now, if you're dealing with a wastewater, whether it's a sanitary wastewater 
we use these and have very successfully used these on landfill leachate, some of the nastiest stuff you're going to find out there. But it works well because it's in a location where they've got plenty of land. They have to treat the, the water that comes out of a landfill and from the trash for 30 years after a landfill is closed. So it's going to go on forever. And so from a passive standpoint, that's a great benefit uh, because the, the costs are down from a maintenance standpoint. In those areas, you don't want to have people going into them because it is wastewater, and you don't want to get in contact with it. Um, but it is such where you can use them as the centerpieces maybe within a larger recreational area where you've got the benefits of trails, you've got animals, you've got uh, different varieties of plants, native plants. Many times what we have done at our sites is put up signs, educational signs, explaining what's going on, hiking around. They're beautiful features with a lot of different color and vibrant plant material. And it's so not only does it provide a place for animals to uh, and habitat, but it also provides a wonderful place for people to hike around. As long as you don't go digging into <laughs> the area, get yourself into the actual wastewater itself. Yeah, you don't want to go camping in there. Um, <laughs> I, right. Can, could you could you give us some thoughts on the future? Where you see uh, not only constructive wetlands going, but but green infrastructure. I mean, what, when you look out at all the projects you've done and and kind of see where where we might be headed, what what do you see in the future? You know, there seems to be a lot of talk these days, and it's a great thing, uh, so don't misunderstand me when I say this, but there's a lot of talk about sustainability. That seems to be the buzzword uh, on a lot of things we do these days, and I love it because it is a discussion that is long needed, and we are finally talking about doing things in a better way. Green infrastructure plays right into that, responsibility in what we're doing on a site and how we use it. I would argue and I would put forward and challenge all the designers that are out there listening um, that when we talk about sustainability, that it's not a choice to use sustainability on a site or not. That sustainable design is good design. And every good design that you do is a sustainable design long term. It's not whether we're going to use green infrastructure or not. It's what is the most important things for this site? And so for us as designers, I think the first question you always have to ask is, what is the purpose of what we're doing here? Is it to treat stormwater? Is there even a stormwater problem to begin with? Is there a pollutant load that we're worried about? Is there a specific pollutant that is unique to this site that we need to worry about with our downstream area? And what I would like to see us evolve from now that we're in a position where green infrastructure is starting to become accepted, it's in a lot of regulations with cities and municipalities, we're becoming familiar with them uh, as techniques, as designers, is us now start to step back and say, okay, where do we actually apply this? Where does it make sense? And so all of our designs, whether it uses green infrastructure or not, if it's sustainable, it's what is right for that site, what is efficient, what is the most cost-effective use of technology to really achieve the results that we need to achieve for our clients and our communities. 
how do we make things better and do it in in the uh, the most efficient manner? I think it is paramount to us as designers, and that's where I hope that we're going with sustainability green infrastructure. Terrific, very good thoughts from your on your part. Um, well, well, Drew, you've been absolutely fantastic today, filling us in on green infrastructure and specifically on constructed wetlands. Um, for those folks who want to find out more about you and VS Engineering, where can they go to get that information? Absolutely. Uh, VSEngineering.com. Everything's on the web these days. Uh, that's V is in victory, S is in Sierra, engineering.com. Uh, they can also contact me directly, uh, Drew Bender. That's uh, dbender at vsengineering.com. Terrific. Well, thanks so much, Drew. Really appreciate your time, and we'll talk to you soon. Dave, great to talk to you. You bet. Bye. Well, that was my interview with Drew Bender of VS Engineering, great guy and a great friend. And he actually provided a lot of great feedback to me after I released the first couple of episodes, uh, which I used to help improve the podcast. So thanks, Drew. Greatly appreciate your help. Um, a couple quick takeaways for you. First, I just want to note the similarities in approaches between Drew and Dr. Ellen Wool in Episode 7 of the Water Values podcast. Uh, Dr. Wool talked about headwater streams and the importance of retaining water uh, high up in those headwater streams to help with filtration and nutrient uptake. And that's very similar to what Drew was saying from a green infrastructure perspective. Now, Drew mentioned one of the purposes of green infrastructure was to retain water and filter pollutants. He specifically even mentioned nitrogen and phosphorus, uh, which, as we all know, when they, when they head downstream, you can get those dead zones like in the Gulf of Mexico and al algal blooms like are occurring in Lake Erie or in the Great Lakes. Um, I'd also say that Drew and Dr. Wool expressed similar thoughts on the speed at which water moves through a system. Remember, Dr. Wool termed the, the channelization of rivers to be leaky rivers because the water should be retained so that it has the opportunity to be, to be filtered uh, and, and settle into the ground and, and provide habitat in those headwaters areas. Drew, likewise, uh, indicated that constructed wetlands and other green infrastructure works best when the water is retained to allow groundwater recharge, pollutant filtration, and habitat creation. And these different applications of the principle uh, have strikingly similar results. My second takeaway concerns the rigid systems for using green infrastructures that some cities have adopted. Uh, I think Drew has a point that, though well-intended, these one-size-fits-all strategies end up doing a disservice to the cities. I understand cities may have variance procedures that could avoid these types of problems, but you know those elevate transaction costs and I'm not convinced that a local zoning board has the expertise to truly understand the issues surrounding green infrastructure or the political will to grant a variance or other zoning exceptions uh, concerning these, these green infrastructure uh, requirements. There's got to be a better way out there. And I'd love to hear some of what you think is working from a zoning or regulatory perspective on green infrastructure. And if you found a way to avoid the problems uh, that Drew's identified. So if you have that, that kind of information please you know, shoot me an email, uh, let me know, or leave a comment on, uh, on, on the show notes on, online. Uh, and speaking of those show notes, you can check them out uh, for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 69. And please don't be bashful and let me know what interested you about the interview or by leaving a comment on, the sh on those show notes. Uh, you can also email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993 and tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. 
And don't forget to rate and please review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. And please don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, again, all of which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.